The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Assemblymember Alex Lee, 25th District, a San Jose Democrat and a Democratic Socialist. And he's a newbie. He's been in the legislature, I think now, Alex, what, five months, six months? Uh, yeah, I think we're going on five months now. Pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, I think rookie still applies, at least through the first year. So thank you so much for being here today and chatting with us. Of course. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. So in this quick time, uh, in this compressed amount of time, and because of the pandemic, it's been different than it usually is. Are there any lessons you've learned so far uh, as you come in and look at lawmaking, look at sausage being made here? Is there any lessons you've got from that? that uh, you, any takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's incredibly um, challenging, but instructive to be a first time elected as a state legislator who represents almost half a million people uh, during this time of crisis, during the pandemic, during so many crises that are happening. But I think it all the and I also sit on the budget committee. So all the early action items we've taken with the leadership of the Senate and the governor, I think have done one interesting thing. It set precedent and showed us example that we can take very decisive, very meaningful, urgent action in people's lives. And that is the kind of action that for a long time, political insiders have said is impossible. You have to do baby steps to it. But we literally proved uh, in a myriad of months that we can make meaningful change in people's lives with, with, uh, with urgency. And I think that's the kind of leadership we should be constantly exemplifying in the state where we have democratic, complete control. Well, the, the perception of the legislature, um, and in many ways it's true, perception is true, and certainly among mm-hmm. journalists and reporters who cover the legislature is that money is fundamental uh, to campaigns and to lobbying, and to it just it's the oil that fuels the legislature. So on the issue of money in politics, generally, most people think getting it out is better, but you run into a buzzsaw mm-hmm. trying to do that. How would you characterize that, the leading up to the AB20 uh, basically going down? Yeah, <laughs> running into buzzsaws uh, it would be a good metaphor, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, on my first day in office, December 7th, I introduced Assembly Bill 20, the Corporate Free Elections Act. And it does something very, very simple and I think modest. It bans direct corporate contributions to candidates, just like we have in federally. So your member of Congress can't do this. And like we have in 22 other states, very similar. But um, that effort stalled yesterday uh, in the last elections committee hearing uh, and did not gain enough support for a myriad of reasons. And I think, you know, the problem is, you know, everyone is every single person I've ever talked to in politics is dissatisfied with the current campaign financing system, with the way that big money rules the day. And yet I think we have become too comfortable with the same systems that perpetuate us in power, right? I am, I think, one of the few members that don't take any corporate money, and I won without taking corporate money, and I still do not do it. And I and I exercise a stronger opt-out than what my bill proposes. My bill only proposes, because of constitutional concerns, direct uh, corporate contributions. I don't take it for PACs. I don't take it from, you know, directly, uh, whatever. Um, 
And I thought it was important that we all try to get there, right? Because the strongest way that big, to prevent big money from having influence on politics is to outright reject it, which I do. But I understand that not everyone can do that in their situations. So let's change the rules so that everyone can. Uh, and that was in my mock proposal. And uh, unfortunately, yesterday, it did not get um, get the requisite votes or motion to even advance. Does the, um, uh, did the legislation take into account corporate donations to parties? We're only talking about individual candidates, right? Or the transfer of funds between candidates or two campaign entities? Did it get into that as well? No, it was very simple and straightforward about a candidate for Cal- in California. This is city council to governor. Uh, could not take corporate contributions and a corporation could not distribute it to a candidate. Okay. Now, there were good concerns raised about like pass-throughs, right? Like PACs, parties, all that stuff. And I was of the mind that um, that would upset even more people if I had put those barriers up and made it very explicit. Okay. Um, so I think it's funny that it's used as a cudgel against my bill when in fact, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to make it as as expansive as possible. But this was the kind of initially what we were talking the most middle modest proposal. It was a compromise really in my mind. Do you have any indication uh, that you're going to bring it back in a different form? That often happens with legislation from veterans, legislation from new folks. A bill goes in, it doesn't get out. But in the course of the debate over the bill, there are suggestions about how to change it that would get more support. Uh, Did you get any Mm -hmm. guidance that way on amendments and coming back in the next session with this bill or coming back later in the current session? Well, there's certainly proposed ideas, right? Like making it more expensive and more comprehensive in which uh, I fully intend to keep working on this issue and keep working on it because I do believe that perhaps then maybe we do need a comprehensive wholesale banning of big money uh, within obviously the realm of constitutionality that is quite narrow right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're familiar with Silicon Valley and I, and I noticed that the chairman, uh, Mark Berman of that committee is also a Silicon Valley type and mm-hmm. he's the 25th district. So he's sort of like, your next door neighbor, twenty fourth. Um, excuse me, twenty fourth district is. Uh, does that play in at all here? Are you both looking for a Silicon Valley base kind of thing? He's had. He's in his third term, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there some rivalry there over who's the big dog in Silicon Valley? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, so interestingly, on that committee dynamic, right? So I represent twenty fifth the district, which is, uh, I guess, we call the northern part of Silicon Valley. Uh, Evan Lowe, who's also in the committee, is kind of the southwest portion of the Silicon Valley. And then you have Mark Berman, who's the northwest, I hope I'm getting my quadrants right, but the northwest portion of the Silicon Valley. So we're all in the same area. We're all district neighbors. And I don't think there's any rivalry in that sense. I think that we do fundamentally have a difference of opinion in this regard. And we've always been very transparent. We're working at it, you know, as he mentioned, the committee since November 2020, at least when I approached with the idea, even before I was sworn in. So I don't think there's any of that kind of rivalry. I think it, it is a strong difference of opinion, which we disagree on quite strongly, uh, but it's not you know, jockeying for um, a base or anything like that. Oh, you were actually an Evan Lowe staffer, correct? That is uh, correct. I was also Evan Lowe staffer. In fact, I think John knows you're still listed on GovBuddy uh, as an, an as legislative aide. Uh, I think right? Right? Oh. GovBuddy, you might want to do an update there. <laughs> really? I yeah, that's that one was there any reconsideration given on the legislation? That's sort of a typical courtesy. And it's usually to allow people to round up votes and come back for another vote. Was that asked for or granted on this one? On AB20, I mean? Yeah. So since it did not receive a motion for a vote, there was no motion to reconsider either. So technically the bill is not dead and is not moving. So it's kind of in limbo. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, there was no motion for consideration. It's technically still just at committee. Uh, okay. Um, Going away from the campaign finance, 
for a second. There are a couple other proposals. Uh, there was a single payer uh, or universal health care. They're often synonymous. We refer to synonymously, but they are different. But there was a single payer bill. There was also uh, a wealth tax proposal. Right. Where are the, I think those went down too, or are they coming? Are they still alive? And Single payer is only te temporarily paused. It will come back in January. Um, I'm not the primary author on it. It is my colleague and neighboring district member, Ashkalra's primary uh, authorship on it. But we are coming back in January to give it more time to work on uh, the funding proposal. So it is not dead. Uh, wealth tax is right now, look, wealth tax is, an, is fundamentally structure around a constitutional amendment, which has different deadlines. So we're still working on it. We didn't get a hearing during this period, but we, there's nothing preventing us from getting a hearing later on. So we're still working on um, working with the committee to, to get it heard. You know, uh, in reference to those bills not advancing, I, I believe you made a tweet mm -hmm. recently saying that the legislature was actually less progressive than Californians. And that really struck me because after the 2020 election, I had sort of the opposite take in the many legislative uh, bills had gotten through, for example, the cash, the bill to eliminate cash bail, uh, AB5, um, and well, it wasn't a bill, but, uh, you know, there's mm -hmm. definitely been motions to eliminate, uh, eliminate the death penalty. And all of those things got shot down by California voters. And it struck me that California is maybe not as progressive as many of us think of it. I think uh, A.G. Block wrote an article for us about the state of the, of the Republican Party. And I think one of the quotes that he had gotten was that California is actually a light blue state, not really a blue state. And I'm wondering how you square the idea that California is actually very progressive, but they reject pretty progressive legislation that comes easily comes through. I mean, the, these bills passed with significant majorities at the legislature, got signed by the governor, and then are shot down by the actual electorate. And could you speak to that and kind of how you how you perceive that? Yeah, two things is one is the deception of big money in our ballot measures. And then I'll talk a bit more on that. And the second thing is, you know, the people are truly progressive, like they have these values. And because there's a big money deception that plays into it, they are deceived into voting another way. And now, and now I'll thread the two needles this way, right? With Prop 22, which was the most infamous anti-progressive legislation, For sure. if you look at all their marketing, it was all about protecting workers. We're going to give everyone greater say, blah, blah, blah. The marketing was not, we will give corporations more money. Same thing with all the things that happened, right? Like Prop 16, Prop 15, all those things we're talking about. We're going to hurt small businesses. We're going to hurt everyday people of color. If you look at all the messaging, the messaging is all co-opted progressive language. It was never a very clear conservative message. And that's how you deceive people. But and a really clear example of how this plays out with the people is in two measures that are much more plain and simple was, um, I'm probably going to forget the numbers right now, but Prop 20, which was the tough on crime one, essentially. And then there was the uh, Prop uh, 17, I would say, that gave uh, people on parole the right to vote. Those one over those in the progressive direction were decisive wins because people understood those ones very clearly without them being couched in the terms. You, could, you couldn't really justify those ones and, and co-opt language, right, in terms of progressive language. And at the same time, in the 2020 primary election, when we still had you know, a normal non-COVID election, Bernie Sanders won almost the entire state almost, I think like most, if not all the counties too. And even true in my district too. Um, but that's so I think there's, I mean, I agree with you there, but that's only, uh, 
Democrats. There's also whatever, 25 percent are Republicans and then independents that vote. So he did get obviously got that. But, mm-hmm. you know, we still we can't forget that there were there were Republicans. California, we Absolutely. often forget that there are there are Republicans, but they are out there. There are a few. If you look carefully, you'll find a Republican in there. Oh, no, there's there, there is. A, I think there's a ch- good chunk of my district and I value them very much, too. But I think ultimately. You know, I'm also reminded of the context history. The progressive movement began with the Republicans. And I think that strain still exists with them is essentially what what progressive means to me is if you're fighting for people who do not have power traditionally, being not progressive is you're fighting for the people who have power. And that is a fundamental divide that exists within our own party that exists within government. Even the, the Republican Party, I would say, has a strain. And that's why there are Republicans in my district that even support me because they understand that I'm fighting for them. And I'm fighting against the bigger interests, right? If you even listen, like if you even listen to the more Trumpian talking points, it's always about a cabal of people that secretly have power, right? I mean, their their conclusions are wrong, but they're kind of like most of the way there uh, because they understand fundamentally there's inequality, right? But they obviously are very racist and they blame a lot of terrible things as scapegoats. But um, fundamentally is there. Even when we did polling early in the year in January for the wealth tax, and this was a cross section of California over 67% of people supported it. And this was Republicans included because people, when they understand that we are fighting for them and we're not couch and it's not being couched and co-opted in the language, understand that, right? Whatever part of, sorry, whatever political affiliation they are, they understand that there is a political power dynamic in a play of wealth of power. Um, and that's what the progressive movement is about. And that's why it can attract people who traditionally a Republican, no party preference, even Democrats. And it's a stronger movement beyond the parties. That sort of brings us back to the money in politics then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, statewide, whatever the political complexion of California is, and light blue, like Tim had mentioned, I think it was Bruce Kane in D.C. who had mentioned that in response to a, a question. Whatever the complexion of California statewide, money can skew that. And the ballot prop 22 with over 200 million dollars 209 million dollars spent on that skewed the obviously it changed the dynamic of the election the people who spent the money got what they wanted so for me it comes back to how much money is in politics the dollars seem to buy results Uh, and until you deal with that then you've still got a lot of problems i personally like public financing of campaigns Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't, I know. It's just oh, a good way to go for me. But, um, and Tim, we may have to edit this out. Maybe I shouldn't take a position. Your freak flag fly. But I have to tell you, on uh, campaign finance reform over the years, something gets passed, but there's always in the fine print a way around it. Mm-hmm. If it's not the donations from individual uh, entities, you know, to legislators, it's donations to the political parties. Uh, from the parties to candidates, from they might be unlimited, or there might be much higher limits on those and individual donations. Typically, there are. Uh, mm-hmm. It just seems like there's always a road, a path to get around what most people seem to want, which is to diminish the level, you know, the amount of money in politics. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. I think there are always going to be glaring loopholes, and I certainly don't want armored trucks running through them. So I'm ready to close as many of them as possible. <laughs> and, you know, I actually anticipate tonight or tomorrow, the California Democratic Party will also adopt AB20 as a bill they support, the entire state party, which we already have parties up and down the state, uh, county parties that have supported. And these aren't the typical, like you think, Bay Area Democrats. I have Democrats from El Dorado, from Orange County, Los Angeles, like everywhere that support this um, because they know the big 
the the undue influence of big money in politics. And honestly, I'm with you with public financing. Originally, my bill had public financing in it, but there's a lot of complications and uh, that will be another subject we visit later on. But like until we, one, lower the influence of, of ginormous money that exists in politics and yeah. then elevate the power of the people, uh, we're going to be stuck in this cycle constantly. Apart from money, just for a second, the uh, question of universal health care and single payer has been around a long time. And it actually has gotten out of the legislature. Uh, mm-hmm. It actually has made headway in various forms over the last 15 years or more. And uh, I'm wondering how you see the, the landscape now for a bill like yours that dealt with single payer. Are there are the chances better for that to get out and to get public acceptance, win public acceptance? Public acceptance is there. It's whether or not there is a political willpower to get there. Everyone has, con- I think most of the majority of people have concluded that having universal health care is the optimal outcome. It's just whether or not the people in power will do that, right? Because it does come at a great transformative change that makes some people uncomfortable. Um, I can't speak to the efforts previously, and I think they were under Governor Schwarzenegger back then because I was in grade school. So I don't remember what happened to those um, or how detailed You said were. that deliberately just to make me feel old. Okay, go no, ahead. No, 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 no. I'm just saying as this point of reference that uh, I don't remember what happened. <laughs> I don't mean to say that that way. Uh, so forgive me. Um, but, but, you know, I think this is the time to do it. I think we have had national conversations about um, universal health care for at least the last six years or so, you know, ever since Bernie Sanders came to the national prominence. Um, and it well, was this time. The Obamacare was, you know, universal health care was very briefly discussed yes. at the beginning of that before they couldn't really, uh, you know, couldn't even get it out of the house. But uh, yeah, that's been part of the. That's right. And that, and that was with a democratic controlled Congress of both houses. For sure. We find ourselves in a very similar situation here in California. The, the spending, um, you know, the warring parties on universal health care in California traditionally have been, I think, have been insurers, business entities versus um, versus progressives versus the medical uh, community at one point. Uh, CMA, CMA has been very active in involved in this fight. Who, do, if we if we had a universal health care on the ballot, if a proposal got to the ballot. Uh, as opposed to the legislature proving legislation. But if it got to the ballot, who do you think would be the warring factions this time? Who would be pro, who would be against, do you think? Uh, the opponents are the people that would still stand, pro- that want to stand a profit from people's deaths and misery. The supporters, everyone else. Um, what's going to happen is, and look, I have talked to a lot of medical groups, physicians of all sorts, and I have not met a single person that says universal health care is not their goal. Not a single person. And I think we are at that reckoning point where doctors, physicians, medical professionals of all sorts understand that this is going to be the future because currently the status quo is unsustainable. I have not met any single person that said the healthcare system right now is ideal or what they prefer. Um, so we need to be having this hard conversation about how that change looks like, right? And we have to have those hard conversations. In my short time in office, you know, I have touched on most of the difficult subjects from criminal justice to tax reform to uh, campaign spending limits, because I think that we need to have strong adult conversations about the changes we need. And if we don't have those conversations at least beginning, um, then we're never going to do it. What about the notion, you know, on campaign spending limits, including labor, limits on labor in the mix? This is always an argument that we get involved in when we talk about limiting corporate donations. Uh, we limit labor donations and corporate at the same time. Uh, is that a way to go? 
so to limit uh, corporations and union donations, you said? Yeah. Um, well, I, I've, <clears throat> I've always been saying there are, there's a false equivalency between that. Right now, even in the Bay Area where I represent, right, the corporations, if you compare the lobbying, spending, and political power of corporations to unions, it's like comparing an aircraft carrier, which is corporations, to a dinghy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are unequal in power, and it, you can look at the results. I don't know why everyone's like, oh, unions have a stranglehold in, in the legislature or in California when we keep, if you look back to the 2020 ballot, right? If you look at the union priorities, we, they all went down, I think. Yeah, they all basically went down. So I don't really, the results are not there. The spending is not there. I'm sorry, the money is not there. The results are not there. So I have no metric to judge where unions are actually doing well. And in fact, since the Reagan era, right, we have organized labor is constantly undermined and we're still to this yeah. day. So I really don't see how they're ever equivalent in anyone's mind, except that they are two factions, yes, but they have an inordinate amount of power. So it's like, again, it's like the aircraft carrier shows up in someone's uh, portion of the sea and then it just blasts the dinghy part. You know, a few years ago, the FPPC did a, reported a survey, they did a study and they said that um, the story, uh, the survey found that business donations, corporate donations outweighed labor donations it was about four and a half to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty big. That's pretty significant. The la- the strong point of labor wasn't so much money, although there are many powerful labor, obviously, packs, but it was boots on the ground. They have volunteers who can actually go door to door in districts and campaign and put door hangers on uh, signs. I mean, they have a lot of people they can marshal. And so, and so they do quite well. So I guess the question is, money isn't the only thing here. Uh, should there be changes in the way we gather signatures? Should there should signature gathering be paid for? Or should the only people allowed to gather signatures are those with a direct interest in the outcome who work for an entity that's supporting it as a ballot measure? I, that's another piece of this that's, that's, that's interesting. It's not talked about as much as campaign donations, for example. Yeah, I definitely think there needs to be common sense reform on ballot signatures signature gathering as well we can't have just people who are on bounty or mercenaries uh, and obviously this conversation has come up before in the legislature but there needs to be a lot of common sense reform on these things and you know the more we rely on big box mercenary spending in our democracy the worse off it is because there are candidates who perhaps win really well or they stay in office a long time but then you go into the community ask them who's your assembly member or what did they do and they're like i don't what's an assembly you know so i was even in the situation where when i was running you know most people didn't know who the incumbent was uh and even when they knew the incumbent sometimes they're like oh i'm so glad you're running against them and i'm like i'm not running against them it's an open seat but um you know i think that just goes to show that we have really lost touch with retail politics with like in person to person connection with democracy and the, the more we do that and the more campaign finance we do the stronger our democracy will become because they'll have more faith in our public servants well what's interesting is you know when when you first came on you said you you know you represent almost half a million people mm-hmm. and there is a difficulty with retail politics you know you can't shake the hand of half a million people that's uh the nature of you know having 39 and a half million people or whatever it is in california and that's a real challenge i think any elected official is going to face is really trying to get uh, well known to their constituents who you know for the most part are never going to you know if your life is going well, you don't interact much with your uh, your elected official, you know. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. so it is an interesting conundrum there that just the nature of having districts that large. I mean, we could be like New Hampshire and have like a thousand, 
a thousand elected officials. Every other neighbor is an elected official. <laughs> exactly. Just about, yeah. Uh, Alex, one last uh, question. So what is in store for you next uh, this year uh, in terms of legislation? you have any goals, anything you intend to introduce, anything you want to follow up this year and next? Well, I'm really excited to pass AB 1509 our uh, big criminal justice reform bill to save taxpayers millions of dollars and also save a lot of people's lives. Um, so it's going to be really important for me to pass that bill this year. We still have a lot of great piece of legislation out there uh, still moving through. Um, one notable legislation is uh, AB 339, which preserves the Zoom and call-in options for public, for like city hall and county board of supervisors meetings that we've seen now. Um, so now that I say them, you know, and the scale of single payer healthcare and wealth tax, they might sound smaller, but I think they're so also significant. Um, so I'm really excited to, you know, keep working at it. And, you know, it's the first, it's not even a uh, finished first year of the two year session. And I'm excited to uh, keep introducing really, um, bold, bold changes we need. Okay. Well, you also have sure. an affordable house or a, what is it? It's a public social housing with, uh, Assuming we Buffy Wicks, is that right? That's right. That's right. We have social housing. It is a two-year bill just because it's out of my choice, so I can have more time to work on it. Uh, but that social housing will be coming in 2022. Got it. Okay. Um, and we were chatting before and before the podcast, we were talking about uh, one of the things we're trying to do each podcast is discuss, Tim and I usually discuss who had the worst week in politics and governance during the state. And we both basically they said, you know, Alex Lee had a bad week. We're going to talk about <laughs> it. So rather than uh, have you bail out right now, is that, you know, what was your take on this week? You mentioned before that you had a good week, a positive week, but when you get beat up by the elections committee chair and you got an elections bill, uh, that makes it pretty tough, especially if you're a rookie. So what's your take on that? Uh, I would definitely agree with you. <laughs> I was probably the member with the worst week uh, in the last week of uh, essentially policy committee meetings. Um, yeah, it's pretty rough. I mean, to to have a very uh, public dressing down kind of from another Democrat is, is pretty rough. But I, while I understand it, I think it was very unfair to call what we do deceptive and we had a very unfavorable analysis, like a lot of things, right? But I understand we have fundamental difference of opinion. Um, but it doesn't phase me. Ultimately, you know, like the work we need to do is always going to be uphill. And if it's anything for people following my career, I have always gone into fights, not knowing a guarantee of victory, but knowing that it's important to have the fight because ultimately we open the door and we bring in more people to keep in this fight. And the progressive movement, even if you go back, you know, a hundred years ago, was always about everyday people coming together against all odds. I think about like the robber barons and the titans of industry back then. And now we're in the same pace, same place, right? And out of the progressive era, we had some amazing strides, and yet we can build upon that once again. But you know, so it's, it's going to come with a lot of bruises and scars, but it's worth the fight. Well, I believe there is a. Uh, I'm not going to remember the quote, but there's a good, a good Theodore Roosevelt. Speaking of progressives, uh, our progressive president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt fought about fight about it. it's not the critic, you know, who is who is on the side yelling at everyone. It's the person in the in the fighting the battle. So uh, exactly, you, you have a good precedent there. Uh, on, yeah. on getting bruised in the uh, in the fight for progressive politics. An interesting little story I would say is, um, sorry, just real quick is, uh, uh, you know, actually near my district or almost in my district, Teddy Roosevelt actually came and planted a tree. So it's actually there and it was just to raise money for school against all odds. So very fun fact, intersection. Assemblyman <laughs> uh, Alex Lee, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Tim Foster, thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, Alex. And this is a so uh, thing. We'll talk to you and see you next time around. Thank you. 
Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.